Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a weekly podcast about the latest new episode of Star Trek. This week we're looking at Season 3, Episode 8 of Star Trek Discovery, entitled The Sanctuary. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Dr. Michael Merrick, and you might think of me as the media guy. And I'm the philosophy guy. My name is Dr. Rodney Cup, and our website is the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com. Dot com, And there you can find links to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we're also available on lots of podcast sites that you can find linked at that website. And some of those sites, like iTunes, allow reviews. So if you like our podcast, we'd appreciate it if you left a review there to help more people find us. As usual, we're going to start the episode with a brief description of the episode uh, of uh, of the sanctuary. And you know, some people may be listening not having seen it. There are spoilers here, if that's the case, or maybe you're listening to this podcast down the road a little bit from when you saw the episode. It will help refresh your memory. And again, we're trying to be fairly short and sweet here, but there are going to be spoilers. And, uh, and this time, Rodney has the episode summary. All right. So as the episode begins, Book has received a message from his brother, Kaihim, who he hasn't heard from in 15 years. And Kaihim is asking Book to return home to Quajon, and Book fears that the Emerald Chain is going to destroy the planet. See, for years, the Emerald Chain has given Quajon repellent to keep harvest-destroying sea locusts at bay in exchange for Quajon's transworms. Admiral Vance allows Discovery to transport Book to Quajon, but only as observers, and he orders Saru to leave the system if Discovery is ever in danger. He wants to protect their spore drive. So once there, they determine that the Viridian, which is Osiris' ship, will be arriving in 30 minutes. So they're in a hurry now. Burnham and Book beam down to the surface to look for Kaihim. And Book judges that Quajan hasn't had their sea locust repellent for weeks. So they travel to the sanctuary, which is an area protected by Quajon's defense system. Now, while we're there, Discovery cannot track them or transport them out. So they, they encounter Kaihim, and he is the steward of the sanctuary, as it turns out. And we learn that Book's father and grandfather worked for the Emerald Chain. And Kaihim provides them with transworms. And that's why Book has been estranged from his family all these years. Now, Burnham and Book learned that Osira has ordered Kaihim to contact Book because she wants Rin, the Andorian, you remember him, and she won't provide Quajon with repellent until she gets him back. So when the Viridian arrives, Osira tells Discovery that she will attack Quajon if Rin is not surrendered to her. She also contacts Kaihim, who tells her that he kept his end of the bargain by bringing Book to Quajan. But she says now that she wants Book also and whoever he came with. And when Kaihim refuses, she tells him that Quajan will undergo famine and she starts attacking the sanctuary. She says she's going to burn down Quajan's forests until he complies. So in order to save Quajan, Kaihim sends people to retrieve Book and Burnham, but they're easily defeated. So Kaihim goes after them himself. 
when Book, though, gives Kaheem an opportunity to turn him over to Osira, Kaheem realizes that he's unable to betray his own brother and he backs down. Now on Discovery, Rin says that he knows where the Viridian's shields are weakest and he offers to help. But Nilsson points out that if Discovery attacks the Viridian, it could set off a war between the Federation and the Emerald Chain. So Rin and Detmer board Book's ship and attack the Viridian with it instead. The Viridian sustains heavy damage and Osira is forced to retreat. But before she does, she tells Saru that the Federation will feel the full weight of the chain. Down on the planet, Burnham suggests that Book and Kaihim, who are both empaths together, ask the sea locusts to return to the sea. Burnham realizes that discovery can amplify the electromagnetic connection between the sea locusts. And they do that and the effort succeeds and the harvest is saved. Now, after all this, Rin tells Tilly that Osira wanted him back because he has a secret. He knows that the Emerald Chain is running out of dilithium, and he figures that the Federation can use that intelligence to their advantage. Elsewhere, Book tells Kaihim that Quajan is still his home, but he likes being on Discovery because they are making a difference. And later, he tells Book, that is, tells Burnham that Discovery saved his planet. And now that he knows how the Federation has helped so many worlds, he wants to join. Now, that's the A storyline. Meanwhile, there are a few other storylines uh, in progress here. Stamets and Adira have discovered that the burn started in the Verubin Nebula. They also discovered an audio signal coming from the center of that nebula, which sounds like the melody people all over the galaxy are familiar with. You might remember that from previous episodes. With Saru's help, they also find a Federation distress signal coming from the nebula, but it needs to be decoded, and Adira is assigned that task. Now, finally, we have some developments in Giorgio's storyline. Culber seems to think that Giorgio is undergoing what he calls a brain dysfunction and that her condition is going to get worse without treatment. So Giorgio reluctantly accepts treatment. Giorgio has another episode, though, while Culber uh, scans her. And during that scan, Giorgio's face weirdly becomes misshapen for an instant. Afterwards, during the red alert, Giorgio decides to go down to the planet's surface to find Burnham, but Colber finds her and talks her out of it in the nick of time. And that's the episode. Okay, thank you. And uh, first, we'll just look at some of the individual elements. Later, we'll get to more of the, the meanings and the morals to the story and the philosophical elements. But uh, uh, when we look at individual elements, I, I just note that Jonathan Frakes, Commander Riker, directed this episode. <laughs> and often in, in the modern uh, Star Trek series, he ends up being the one directing some of the heavy hitting episodes. And, uh, and the one today had some significant developments in it. Much of, much of that had to do with what we learn about Osira and the, the Emerald Chain. And one of the things that hasn't been mentioned before, we learned that the burn caused damage to subspace, shifting the orbit of Quajian's moon, uh, which is what caused some of the environmental issues. 
It's the first time that we've heard that the burn did anything other than cause matter-antimatter explosions. We'll see if that continues to be part of the storyline. Just for the record, I tried to figure out where Kuijian came from, uh, where, the, where the name, if there was an inspiration for it. In Chinese, the second half of the word Jian uh, means to see, like, like visually to see, uh, but I haven't been able to figure out any other source for Kuijian as a name. The Viridian, though, um, Osiris' flagship, well, that could well have been named after the planet, the star system in Star Trek Generations. Viridian is where Picard and Kirk had to go, uh, and the Nexus did or didn't cause damage, depending on which timeline you were in. Oh, man. I did not remember that, but I did uh, notice that um, Viridian is a fancy word for a shade of green, which seems fitting given who's piloting it. The Orions. Orions being green, yes. And here's another kind of interesting connection. Osira is kind of reminiscent of Osiris, kind of a feminine ending. And Osiris was uh, the Egyptian god of fertility, agriculture, the afterlife, a lot of things, the dead, resurrection, vegetation in ancient Egypt. And he was classically depicted as green-skinned, a green-skinned deity. I was really interested in Kayla and Book's ship. I, I think we've observed before that as they created the character of Kayla, I think that some of the people doing that knew pilots because there are things that are very reminiscent of pilots that I've mm. known. I suspect that at some point she snuck down, a previous previous to this episode, she snuck down and just checked out Book's ship because she's a pilot and she would just want to know. Uh, even though she probably didn't have a chance to actually fly it. She checked it out, and so she knew its capabilities, and she knew the controls. And when it comes time to actually fly it in this episode, she really rocks it. And just like the cliche of every home video conference, right in the middle of it, Grunge jumps on Rin's lap at the least convenient time. Ha right. Have you been on video conferences, Rodney, where a cat all of a sudden jumped onto, into the camera range? It not yet, I but I've seen have. it. Oh, you I have? have? Yeah. I've seen it happen, uh, yeah. though. I mean, my cat hasn't done that, but I've seen yeah. And it's always fun. When, uh, when my daughter was doing school online in the spring, they would meet with their teacher using Zoom, and it was always fun to see the kids on the screen with their cats, and they would be showing off their cats. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. not as much fun for Rin, though, because he doesn't know what a cat is. Yeah, right. So... Uh, Book's ship really seems to have a huge inventory of weapons. And yeah, at one point they were talking about shields being down to 10% or so, but they just kept being able to, to fire the, the weapons. And I guess many of them were phasers, so as long as they have the energy, they can keep putting them out. But there was a lot of firepower there, more than you might expect in a courier ship. Yeah, I was surprised at how uh, effective Book's ship was in damaging the Viridian. They really roughed it up. You know, in Star Trek, we don't very often see fighter ships. And I think big starships are not very well attuned to fighting against small maneuverable ships. Before the Discovery Season 2 finale, we never really saw a fighter craft in Star Trek. And from the beginning, from Gene Roddenberry's original ideas, he was thinking, he was translating the Navy, you know, ocean-going vessels, the Navy into the Starfleet context. And in the Navy, you know, you don't, you don't have other uh, 
gunships that are firing on battleships and uh, and aircraft carriers. Star Wars, of course, was based on aerial combat fighters. And so again, this was, it's not very often we see a small ship going up against a big ship in Star Trek. You know, the only thing I can think of now that you mention it is Star Trek Beyond, where the, the Enterprise is completely destroyed by those tiny ships. That's the only thing I can think yeah, of. Yeah, those little bitty drone drone things. Well, the 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 big battle at the end of season two of Discovery. Oh, well, that you know, also, and, I yeah, guess. You know, um, the Enterprise and Discovery unaccountably had thousands of little fighter ships on board. But it's it's interesting because it's it's a uh, it's something we haven't seen that often in Star Trek. Kayla as as pilot and doing most of the stuff uh, actually comes off pretty well. And I think they've set this up because in earlier episodes, she's had some issues of confidence. At one point here, she says, if you face up to something, you can beat it. And that's exactly what we're going to do. She compliments Rin. And for a pilot to say this to another pilot, it's quite a compliment that she has the right co-pilot. And knowing what he did in the past, which is what made Osira mad at him, gives her strength. And when she says, I just need you to be brave for a few minutes more, she's saying that to Rin, but I think she's talking about herself also. She's telling she's yeah. telling herself the, the symbolism is she's she's addressing that level of confidence uh, within herself. And then as you indicated in the uh, in the summary, the big reveal here is that the emerald chain is short of dilithium and they're just barely scraping by. And I guess that's not too surprising given what Admiral Vance has told us in the past. And I suppose uh, Tarina, right? I think maybe they've both said that 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 uh, the galaxy's supply of dilithium is running low. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we heard indications uh, in episode number one of the season that Book had a recrystallizer for dilithium. Oh, right. Uh, but still there's only so much dilithium and a lot of it got got blown up and the more ships you try to have to do stuff the more dilithium you need mm -hmm. so we uh, we learn a little bit more about the burn last week when we previewed this week's episode we thought we were going to find out all the answers about the source of the burn and it was only just teased here we found the location of it but not really the cause the burn started in the Verubin nebula and I haven't seen anyone comment on it, but I'm quite confident that the Verubin Nebula was named after Vera Rubin, uh, 1928 to 2016. She was an astronomer who found some of the first evidence ever of dark matter. Very, very well-known female astronomer. See, that's some good knowledge right there. That's not the kind of knowledge you're going to get from just any Star Trek podcast. Well done, Michael. My background in radio uh, also had me ask some questions about this this radiation coming out of the nebula. It, it, they said it had intense radiation, unstable EM fields, which means electromagnetic mm -hmm. uh, radiation. And they talked about the lowest EM frequency was 5.75 kilohertz from a nearby neutron star. 5.75 kilohertz is a higher frequency than AM radio. It's what we would generally call a shortwave band, where you would mm -hmm. find international broadcasters or oh. not exactly the frequencies, but near the frequencies that amateur radio operators and probably even some military, uh, long distance military radio communication would uh, would use. Uh, so that was interesting. You would think that if a Starfleet vessel sending out a distress signal 
they send it on subspace, right? Which is different. Subspace is not radio. They right. call it subspace radio, but it's not conventional electromagnetic uh, spectrum. And to me, it was really odd that the encoded message is not easily decryptable. If you were on a starship that was in distress, you had to send out a distress signal. Wouldn't you want anyone who hears it to be able to figure out what's going on rather right. than have to spend hours and hours and hours decrypting it? Right. So I had some questions that were based on my background in, in radio. I'm also wondering how the whole, the audio coming out of the nebula is is pervading the galaxy, how that's going to work, the Barzans and Gray's cello tune and all that. Yeah, well, they're answering questions, but they're they're also raising some here. Yeah. And hopefully this all gets uh, tied together soon uh, because we're running out of episodes. But, uh, you know, listening to you talk here, I've got a few questions of my own. There are various ways you could explain this, I suppose. I mean, maybe this distress signal, whoever sent it, wants it decrypted only by certain people and not others for you know reasons to be determined. Perhaps they have a, a secret that needs to be kept from others. I don't I don't know. And another question I had is that um, you know all they added to the uh, SB19 data w was the data from Burnham's three black boxes. And that doesn't seem like a lot of data. And I guess my question is, is that all it took to disprove the Navarian belief that the burn uh, started at Navarre? Or were the, or were we, were, was, were the people of discovery being lied to at that quorum? I, I have questions. Well, and, and we need to see, I mean, the the location that was apparently the source doesn't necessarily tell us anything about who caused it and that in theory could still have been the vulcan slash romulan experiments i i don't know in two-dimensional space on a flat surface three points can really triangulate you know if you're on a map you have three different points and you have like a compass a compass angle, you can triangulate and get a specific point. The understanding is the SB-19 had multiple additional physical locations where they were recording data that allowed much more detailed pinpointing of the source to the Verubin Nebula. Um, right. But it still doesn't really say anything about what the cause was. And we don't even know that, that the starship that's inside is the cause could be a coincidence, right. probably not, but but there's probably some kind of dynamic there, but we don't know really anything about the cause, so we can't say anything yet about who might have caused it. Right. I guess my point is just that I, I find it um, implausible that, that data from three ships would be enough to falsify the hypothesis that the burn started on or at Navarre, given the size of their data, set of data. Well, if I was a, a Navarre scientist and I was being forced to continue work on something I considered to be dangerous, I would find a distant remote location to do it. I wouldn't do it right on my home planet. Ah, and, right. And remember all the way through, they've had all these additional locations source, you know, sources of readings. So they have probably known the location for a long time if they bothered to to do the calculation. 
So they've known in much more detail where it started longer than the rest of the Federation Anyone. has. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not going to talk a lot about Giorgio, um, but the previews, again, suggest there's going to be a heavy emphasis next week in the coming weeks. And we've talked before about Giorgio as a main character in this Section 31 series that we've heard about. And we've talked about how Giorgio's character needs to change to, to make that work, in my opinion, at least. And I think that may be what we're seeing here. We're, we're seeing, we're focusing more on her story, her backstory, Giorgio coming to grips with things that have happened to her. In one of the preview scenes, there's a scene of Giorgio and Burnham walking in the snow. Did you see that? Yes. And it's very similar to basically the very first scene of season one, episode one, the Vulcan hello, where they're, they're walking together in the desert. But uh, I, I think there's a good chance that this current Giorgio story arc is essentially serving as the pilot for the section 31 series that we keep hearing about. Uh, we haven't heard anything about it starting production, but we right. keep, we keep hearing about it. A couple of notes about Saru. Uh, I, I thought it was really interesting. The other people on the bridge question him about his order to use force at Kuejian, and he very succinctly explains his rationale. And he does it in, in not many words, but so his, his bridge crew completely understands where he's coming from. And just, you know, like snap of a finger, they turned around and they were completely supportive. And I think that's, that's enlightened leadership. Uh, when subordinates know where you're coming from as a leader, and what your rationale is, what your logic is, what your reasoning is, they're likely to be more supportive and to do a better job. So I thought that was a very enlightened thing for the captain to do rather than, for example, Captain Jellicoe would have just said, don't ask questions, do it. That's exactly what I was going to yeah. say. I was going to say, somebody <laughs> tell Captain Jellicoe. Yeah. <laughs> so Cyril is also working on his tagline, like we saw Captain Freeman in Lower Decks. And that I think that's a little bit of fan service to people that watched Lower Decks. And, and so it'll be interesting to see what it comes up with. I, I personally think that the most Navy and its inspiration would just be execute. Um, because, you know, in the Navy, they talk about executing maneuvers and things. Mm. They could do like a, an Easter egg to Galaxy Quest and have him say, pedal to the metal, Kayla, or something like that. You know, one of my very first ever online discussions about Star Trek was back in 1989. And one of the very wow. first messages I saw in this discussion group about Star Trek in 1989 was a joke. It went something like this. I don't remember exactly, but but Captain Picard, because it's his hobby, is at an archaeological dig. Mm. And they dig up this ancient device uh, at the archaeological dig, and you can just barely read it, but on on the device is the word singer. And Picard says, make it so. I get it. Sewing <laughs> <laughs> <Throwing> machines. <laughs> anyway, um, and, and then one other thing, I haven't mentioned it in previous weeks. I've observed it. The big fight scene down on the planet with Book mm. and Burnham and, and his brother's men they sped up the video on that. And some people may not notice it. I know enough about video that it does jump out at me. They, the, the actors and the stunt people can do their stunts and fight more slowly, but then in post-production, they speed it up so that it feels like 
but very frenetic combat. I did not notice that, Michael. I did not notice that. Yeah, I've 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 seen it in several of the action sequences, and for me, it it bugs me. Oh, it does. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And I know again, it doesn't look quite natural to you. No. Uh, it, yeah. It's too jerky. It moves too too fast, but. This is, a bare, this is a barely relevant side note, but just the other day I was watching um, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, 1935 movie, The 39 Stem Steps, excuse me, and I noticed that in that movie he had sped up some of the film, Yeah, and, and it did bug me, but I did not notice it in this episode. No, you, but, you um, fairly often see it in action sequences in science fiction visual storytelling. Hmm. So, yeah. Well... Maybe at this point we can shift to uh, meanings. We've talked about some of the elements that that uh, caught our attention. Now we can talk about uh, messages that the uh, writers or the producers are perhaps trying to get across. And I think I think a really important message here is. Actually, it's a fairly short scene, but it's the dialogue between Adira and Stamets about Adira being non-binary. And I think that that is really quite important as a television event. It may initially not have seemed like that much, but I think it is important. Non-binary characters are very rare in TV today. A few years ago, they would have been just unheard of. In this case, Adira of being non-binary is not a plot point. It's part of character development, but it's not a, a plot point. So having Adira be non-binary is groundbreaking for Discovery. Way back in in a book he wrote in 1979, David Gerald, who, who wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, and he's been associated with Star Trek as a writer and a producer for a long time, he observed that in dramatic television, whether it's set in the past like like the Westerns, Gunsmoke and Bonanza, or in the future, like Star Trek, the stories are still really about people from today that are seen as living in the world of those alternate times. We're not talking about time travel here, it's different, but we're talking about that the, the characters and their worldviews and values are essentially, and even the storylines are essentially people of today. They stem from today's society translated into a different time. And the original series of Star Trek in particular used stories set in the future for all kinds of social comment about the Vietnam War, right. equality of the sexes, the arms race with the Soviet Union, American and Soviet Union, population pressure, haves and have nots, medical ethics, and of course, in many episodes, societal concern about the fledgling age of, of computers. And so I think Adira is a prime example of Star Trek addressing today's understanding of LGBTQ by putting it in this future context. Gray's character is not developed quite as much, and we're not exactly sure about Gray being, is Gray going to be transgender? Is Gray going to be non-binary? What's the deal there? Stamets and Culber certainly are gay characters, and they're all part of this representing and more more important normalizing people of different genders and and orientations in the ready room for this episode blue del barrio who portrays uh, adira 
mentions that she went back and studied Jadzia from Deep Space Nine, a very similar, you know, uh, trill blended with a symbiont, so with both male and female previous hosts, because Jadzia, in effect, was uh, sort of a, a transgender, a, a non-binary character, even though at, at the time of Deep Space Nine, the practical realities of the TV business didn't allow them to be as overt about it as Discovery. But Blue Del Barrio said that even back then, trans and non-binary fans have always understood Jadzia that way. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's particularly smart of the writers. I mean, they've, they made this decision to address this and the decision for Adira to reveal their pronoun preference to Stamets first. And Adira said that, that Gray had known about it, but Stamets was the first, first other, other person. And knowing Stamets, if anybody was going to react negatively or say that's deeply weird, right. it would be Stamets. And the fact that Stamets accepted Adira's request is, oh, okay, no big deal, is, is really, I think, more telling than if it had been some other character who maybe accepted it the same way. Like Tilly. I mean, Tilly would have obviously accepted it. But, but again, for Stamets, it was no big deal. And, and that, that itself was a very important point. Yeah. Stamets reacting that way essentially shows that in the broader culture that he came from, which was 10 years before the original series, and certainly with what he's learned about the, the 32nd century, that, that it's no big deal, that it is just, you know, people, people are different and people's gender identity and preferences are different. Um, so I, I thought that it, it's a short scene and in some ways it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal, but I think it is important in television history and I think it will be remembered for a long time. I agree. I agree completely. I, I wanted to talk about the primary or what I think is the primary conflict of this episode, because I, I think it leads to a, uh, a few messages. For me, I, I believe the primary conflict is between uh, Book and Kaiheem. So looking at Kaiheem here for, for a minute, he thinks that the Emerald Chain has saved Quajan from famine by providing them with repellent in exchange for the transworms. All right. And he also believes that Book turned his back on his home planet when he refused to participate in this scheme. And so Book for Kaihim is being disloyal to his family and to his people. And Kaihim is, is willing to turn Ren over to Osira in order to protect Quajan's harvest, even if it means Ren will be enslaved. So that's Kaihim's sort of uh, perspective all, on all this book is opposed. <laughs> I mean, his view is that he's not going to turn Rin over to Osira because he will not allow him to be returned to slavery. And even if, if it was needed to safeguard Quajan's harvest, he will not do it. Book sees that Quajan is completely at Osira's mercy. Quajan now is in a position of having to give Osira anything she wants, anything she demands. And, and he points out to Kaihim that someday she may come for him, Kaihim, right? And given what we know about Book, obviously he's going to think that it's wrong to treat transworms as a commodity to be bought and sold and eaten, <laughs> right, on the market. 
So, I mean, putting all this together, this this conflict, I think we're going to uh, see a theme that we saw in, in the last episode. Kaheem's principle, if he's acting on principle, it might be this, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Kaheem's view is that the ends justify the means. Whatever is required to protect the harvest and prevent starvation is justified. Book, on the other hand, says that he's he tells Kaheem he's held on to a few core principles. He thinks there are certain things that are simply unjustifiable, no matter the consequences. And his principle might be the rights of the few may not be violated to benefit the many, right? And I think the episode's message is that that's the correct principle, right? Kaheem, his intentions are good, no doubt, but his principles, his views here are, are mistaken. And by the end of the episode, he sees that Book's view of things is correct. So I don't know what you think about that, Michael, but I, I think that's uh, one of the messages of this episode. And I think, yeah, I think that is the character arc within the episode for Kaheem. And initially, in a way, he's taking the easy way. I mean, yes, he kind of decides to betray his brother, but he's essentially taking the easy way. But sometimes the easy way is not the best way. Right, right. It's easier just to to comply with this arrangement that they have with the Emerald Chain. But in the end, he he finds that he's unable to betray his brother. And so he's forced into having to do things the hard way, right? Mm -hmm. I also wanted to say that the episode, I think, seems to be a critique of what you might call unprincipled capitalism. And let me explain what I mean by that. So, Osira, and you pointed this out uh, earlier, or maybe I'm not sure, but uh, Osira tells Saru that her ancestors knew that power is virtue and that you do what it takes to get what you need or you don't. And so this is sort of a, a might makes right kind of philosophy. And Vance, in his discussion about this matter near the beginning of the episode, he says the chain makes reckless contact with pre-warp civilizations that have something they want. And why do they do that? Well, in order to get the, what they want, but in order to get these civilizations to comply, they offer to solve their serious problems in exchange, but they, of course, they demand payment. Unlike the Federation, they expect to be paid by being given what, what they want. Now, these civilizations, I think, that are contacted by the Emerald Chain, they're desperate. They're desperate for solutions to their problems, and therefore, they're not really in a position to bargain. They're not bargaining as equals, right? So, it's easy to get them to agree to terms that they wouldn't agree to otherwise. Now, from the outside, it might appear as if the parties have fully consented to the agreement, but in reality, you know, planets like Quajon are coerced into uh, accepting the terms. And this makes me think of Rin. I mean, these civilizations, they're completely in, at the mercy of, of the Emerald Chain, much like Rin was when he was enslaved by the Emerald Chain. So, this is what I think of as, as an attack on unprincipled capitalism that I guess would recommend that you make any deal that you can, even if it, it puts, you know, other parties in a subservient position, which is, you know, undignified and demeaning. And, and let the buyer beware. It sounds kind of Ferengi. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. 
You know, I wonder if we're going to see more character development for Osira. She feels that, that power is virtue and there is no nobility in suffering. And, and essentially, I mean, she does what it takes to get what she needs. I mean, so often across all kinds of TV and movies, we see characters that are bad just for the sake of being bad. Mm. And I always like to see, even if they're a bad guy, I like to see characters that have more nuances to them. Absolutely. Uh, so, so is Osira just being bad for the sake of being bad? Or is she, maybe it's the only way she can figure out to react to this galaxy that that for the last hundred years has been in chaos. The only way she can make things work. Maybe she's being loyal to her her subordinates, to her employees, or of course she killed one of her family members who messed up. But uh, um, you know, it, it will be interesting right. to see if they give us any any more understanding of the background and motivation of of Osira. I hope they do. I, I agree. We we need to know more about the emerald chain and how we got here and what's motivating people like Osira. I hope they do give us that. I agree. There was one additional thing I noted about Quajian. They had an ecological problem. Okay. These uh what sea locusts which sea were locusts. really nice little animation thingies that had come out of the sea and were killing the crops. They solved the problem, this ecological challenge by being in harmony with the ecology by being empathic and communicating with it. And I think that there is a, an ecological message there. And basically the same happened for, for the two brothers that when they decided to be in harmony, be empathic with each other, all of a sudden they, they solved many of their differences. They did. And I just remembered that near the end of the episode, when Kaiheem and Booker talking, Kaiheem remarks that the Federation could use more empathy. He's perhaps sensing that Book is interested in joining the Federation. And Book says, yes, <laughs> right? And maybe there's a bigger message there that, that about empathy and its value in helping people solve, resolve their conflicts, right, Michael? It could be, could be. I mean, the Federation has been in extreme circumstances for decades, for, for a century. Mm -hmm. And uh, they do have diplomats and things. We haven't really seen them, but we've heard mentions of diplomats. But in your, when you're in extreme circumstances, you tend not to be as uh, empathetic, as empathic with, uh, with others. And, right. uh, you know, we may, we haven't really seen much of it yet, but there may be, in effect, a character development arc for the Federation and for Starfleet as a whole here <laughs> that we're going to be seeing as, as well. Well, we're kind of close to, to being ready to wrap up here, but I want to talk again for a moment about next week and the previews that we've seen and what little we know about the cause of the burn. And when we find out that there's uh, some kind of starship inside the Verubin Nebula sending out a distress call, it occurred to me, and I think from what I've seen online, it occurred to a whole bunch of people that maybe the starship that is inside the nebula is Discovery, is the version of Discovery we saw in the Short Treks episode Calypso. 
that ship. They didn't exactly say it was in a nebula, but there was lightning and stuff outside. And in Star Trek, we've seen lightning and nebula before. But it was also the pre-refit version of the ship. I mean, just just uh, this season, they've they've kind of rebuilt. And, and in in terms of the graphic appearance, graphics. They've made a lot of changes. It's not just the control panels inside. But so what we saw in Calypso was the pre-refit version of, of the ship. And no one can figure out how they're going to make that work. How, you know, a different timeline or, I mean, who knows? Who knows? But uh, regardless, there aren't that many episodes left. It looks like five, best we can tell. And so the storyline is going to have to come to a conclusion. All of these different threads come to fruition sometime soon because they're kind of getting past the point where they could beat around the bush. Uh, so I think we can, in the rest of the episodes, we can look at some major plot developments uh, coming fairly soon. Right. I'm ready. And next week, it's the beginning of a two-part episode, Terra Firma, part one. And there's not much indication as to what the, the episode reference is to. I mean, Terra Firma means Terra is Earth and Firma means the ground, being on the ground. Right. But we don't know how that's, how that's going to play out in terms of its meaning for the plot. You know, and the preview makes it appear as if uh, George O is going to be the focus of this next episode. I wonder if she's going to be the focus of the next two episodes, since this is a two-parter, I wonder. Maybe. Just a maybe, question. Maybe terra firma is a metaphoric reference to her needing to ground herself or something like that. Mm-hmm. Bring it, you know, so could, could be. I like that. So that's going to do it for this week. Uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us. And the Star Trek Academy podcasts about every new Star Trek episode of every series. You can find us at the Star Trek Academy blogspot.com. And that site also has links to several platforms for your podcast app. So we look forward to seeing you next week for the discovery episode entitled Terra Firma part one. <laughs>